Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I invite you to open your Bibles again to the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Luke as we're studying verse by verse through Luke's Gospel. When we come to the end of chapter six in a few weeks, the plan is to take a little break from the Gospel of Luke. Luke has 24 chapters. And if we take six a year, fellow going back to school this week, it will take four years to finish. And uh, that's our commitment. Of course, my prayer is the Lord comes back long before we finish the Gospel of Luke. But if he doesn't, if he leaves us here and we're still living, the plan is to preach through all 24 chapters. It reminds me of a dear lady, Mrs. Violet Smith, who was a member here for many years. <laughs> Ms. Violet uh, lived into her 90s, I recall. She used to tease me for making these long-term plans. And she said, Keith, at my age, I don't even buy green bananas anymore. <laughs> this uh, chapter, Chapter 6 is part of, we believe, the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount thematically is about the kingdom. Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God was among men. John the Baptist, his forerunner, said the king is coming. His apostles declare the king has come. And so the question is, how do we know which kingdom we're in? The Bible declares there's two sorts of people those who are in the kingdom of God and those who are in the kingdom of Satan. How do we know who's in and who's out? Well, Jesus says you can tell, first of all, by how people think specifically about themselves. The person who's in the kingdom is a person who is humble. He calls them spiritual beggars. They are poor of spirit. They recognize their depravity. They, they recognize their need of salvation and they call upon Christ. They are hungry for the kind of righteousness that only God can provide. On the other hand, people who are outside of the kingdom are self-righteous. They are not hungry for the things of God. They are fully satisfied with the things of the world. It's not only how they think, but, but how they act that designates people as to which kingdom they're in. Jesus said that those who are in his kingdom do good to everyone, not just those who do good to them. He says, you love even your enemies, according to verse 27. As we saw last week, what he was really saying is that Christians are to broaden their definition of the word neighbor. We know that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, but many people only include neighbors, those who are by blood related to them, or at least very close to them, who have treated them kindly. Years ago, there was a false doctrine that emerged, and it's still around today, called the universal fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man. The idea is that all human beings are connected genetically, which is true enough, and so therefore we should consider ourselves brothers and sisters. And since we're brothers and sisters and God is our Father, that means we're all going to end up in the same place, so we need to hold hands and buy each other Coca-Cola. Now that is not what the Bible teaches. Jesus said to the Pharisees that they were of their father, the devil. And so God in that sort of salvific scene is not the father of all men. He is the father of all men in the sense that he has created all men. 
And all men have dignity and worth because they've been created in His image. And R.C. Sproul says, we reject the doctrine of the universal brotherhood of man, but we embrace as Christians the doctrine of the universal neighborhood of man. That's right. We are to consider all people of all races and tribes and even our enemies as our neighbors who should be treated with dignity, respect. And Jesus says, love. And the way that love is shown is through merciful speech. Bless those who curse you. When someone curses you with their mouth, you return blessing. When someone slanders you, Jesus says, you pray for them who accuse you. Not only that, we are generous. Generous, first of all, with forgiveness. Look at verse 29. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Generous with our resources. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. By the way, he's speaking about our enemies in this entire chapter. Be generous to your enemies. Be merciful to your enemies. Because after all, Jesus says, even the sinners, which are those he considers in this, the other kingdom, outside of the kingdom of God, they love too. Don't, don't ever get the idea that lost people can't love. They just can't love the way God loves. They love those who love them, according to verse 32. They do good to those who do good to them, according to verse 33. They are generous when it is advantageous to be so. In other words, the overriding characteristic of a lost person is they look out for number one. On the other hand, Jesus says the overarching characteristic of a Christian Someone in his kingdom, verse 31, is they treat others the same way they want to be treated. The King James says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, when we live like this, as Christians, we show, Jesus says, that we are the sons of the Most High. We give evidence that we are in his kingdom by how we treat our enemies. Because that's how God treats his enemies. You say, well... I'm not a Christian, but I'm not an enemy of God. Yes, you are. If you violate His commandments, and we all do, you're born into the world in rebellion against God. You are His enemy. You say, well, I don't like Christians. I hate Christians, but I love Jesus. No, you don't. Jesus said to Paul on the road to Damascus, why persecute me? When Paul was persecuting Christians, it was as if he was persecuting Christ himself. That's how closely he identifies with us. So to be an enemy of Christ is to be an enemy of the church and vice versa. How do we know that God is merciful to his enemies? Well, a number of ways. One way is when you tell a little white lie and you reach your hand to your chest and your heart's still beating, you know God's merciful. God's merciful. In fact, how many of you got rain at your house last night? Just raise your hand. You know, the Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust. So by raising your hand, you didn't say a thing about your spirituality. You said a lot about God's character. He's a God of mercy, right? So let's continue this morning under this theme of loving your enemies. And I know this passage of scripture has struck a chord with a lot of you. I, I received a lot of emails, a lot of calls. A lot of people came to see me and said, I, I needed that last week. And I did too. Because probably like never before in most of our lifetimes, there's a hostile attitude towards Christians. There's a hostile attitude in our culture towards Christians. At school, that's why we pray for our students and teachers today. 
It's at work. Some of you are the only Christian on your floor. Some of you are the only Christian in your household. And so we need to pray for one another. We saw unfold in Virginia last night how lost people treat their enemies. They hit each other with sticks and pipes and they run each other over with cars. Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those who treat you poorly. Pray for them. Well, the assumption is that you have enemies if you're a Christian. You say, I don't have any enemies. Everybody loves me. But Jesus says, if that's true, be careful. Verse 26, woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets the same way. If no one hates you in your life, it may be evidence that you're not walking very closely with Jesus. Because not everybody loved Jesus. And Jesus never harmed anyone. And so, um, let's assume that as Christians we have enemies, because we do. You remember that Jesus is addressing this message to his disciples. He's not saying this is an ethical paradigm that if all humans would live under, we'd all get along. He knows that is impossible without the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So he's talking to believers. And he gives them two do's and two don'ts as far as relating to their enemies. So this is what he says again, verse 37, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Pardon and you will be pardoned. Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Lord bless the reading of his word. Now, don't forget what is the context of this entire sermon. It's about the kingdom. And this particular passage is about loving your enemies. But these two verses, verses 37 through 38, in my opinion, are two of the most misinterpreted and misapplied and abused verses in all the Bible. Verse 37 is misinterpreted and abused by lost people primarily. And verse 38 is misinterpreted and abused primarily by people claiming to be Christians. Here's what I mean. How many of you have heard when some Christians preaches or speaks against some sin in the culture, you're not supposed to judge. Jesus says don't judge, right? And so they interpret that to mean and what they preciously want it to mean is that Jesus says we're just to live and let live. Not to ever mention anyone's sin, just get along with everybody and turn a blind eye to the worst sorts of depravity. That's not what Jesus means. On the other hand, verse 38 says, if you treat people like this, if you love your enemies, they will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. How many preachers have you heard when the budget was tight, preach this verse to mean that if you give a bigger offering, you're going to have more money in the bank at the end of the year. That is just as an abuse as the one before. Now, it may be a principle of the scripture that if you're generous, the Lord will give you more to give. But that's not the verse to base that on, okay? You'll notice this is a plural pronoun. They will give. He's not talking about the Trinity. He's talking about your enemies, as we'll see today. So let's look at these two do's and two don'ts of loving your enemies. The first, he begins with the negative. He gives two don'ts. First, he says, do not judge. Now, before we can explain what that means, we have to tell you what it does not need. Turn over to Matthew chapter 7. 
You recall that Luke 6 is a synopsis of Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And so in Matthew 7, 1 and following, we find a fuller treatment, a commentary, if you will, on the statement of do not judge. Matthew 7, 1, Jesus says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, you can't read that with any degree of credibility. And take from that, Jesus is saying, don't be discerning. In fact, he's saying, be discerning, but here's how you're to be discerning. Don't be hypocritical. And he uses an almost comical picture here. Here's a guy that's got a two by six sticking out of his orbital bone. And he walks over to his friend and say, hey, come close and let me get that little dust in the corner of your eye. He said, first remove the beam out of your own eye, then you can see clearly to help your neighbor. And so he's saying, when you're discerning, when you're pointing out truth, don't be hypocritical. Don't be guilty of the same sin you're condemning in other people. And I would add to that, don't judge hastily. Not only don't judge hypocritically, don't judge hastily. That is to jump to conclusions, to automatically assume the worst about people. I think that's the essence of what Jesus means when he says, be merciful to your enemies. Think the best of them. Don't always ascribe to them the worst of motives. I've been guilty of this in my life numerous times. And even in the church, in the 18 years I've been here, I am guilty of believing too much in my own ability to read people. And so I'll meet someone either in the community or who joins the church and Immediately, I'll decide in my mind whether this person is deep spiritually or not, right? And so sometimes people give the appearance that they really have it all together. They're walking closely to the Lord. And then you'll have another person who, you know, just on first appearances, they, they, you just assume they're not real strong in their faith. But then the storms of life come, right? As they surely will. And the trials of life reveal faith, right? And Oftentimes, the very people I thought weren't very strong end up being rock solid. And the people I thought were real deep get swept away. So, so be careful about judging too hastily. We do that the other way too, right? Where we want to give trophies and awards for people for Christian service. And before their life is over, they've proven themselves unworthy. Let's let, let God be the judge, right? Both of eternity and rewards. Let's just love one another and love our enemies and let God be the judge ultimately. That's what he means. I often say to people, they ask me, who's the, the strongest preacher or Christian leader in the world today? And I always say the same thing. It's too early to tell. <laughs> Let's wait till we're all dead and gone, gone and let God determine that, right? We'll know because he does perfectly. He's the perfect judge. I, I remember... I think I've told this story once before. It's so embarrassing, I almost don't want to say it. When I was in college, I and two of my best friends publicly professed that God was calling us to be pastors around the same time. And we did everything together, played ball together, we ran around, we ate our meals together. 
One day, uh, we went over to a sandwich shop in Starkville, Mississippi, where I was going to school. And we were having uh, one of those deep theological discussions that only 21-year-olds who know everything can have. And I mean, we were into it. And we ordered our food, we sat down, we were still going at it. And in walks a little fella who we all recognized as the, the town panhandler. He, he just lived begging from people, change and those sorts of things. And he apparently had, had made enough money that morning to buy a meal. And he walked in, he ordered his sandwich, and he, he sat down. And we're over there saying, you know, under our breath, that guy ought to be working. And he takes his hat off, and he folds his hands, and he prayed a very beautiful prayer, thanking the Lord for his sandwich. And these three theological geniuses hadn't bothered to do that before they ate. They were too busy teaching each other theology to thank the Lord for their food. And so this is the point. Don't judge hypocritically and don't judge hastily. That's what he means. And then he says it a little different way. He says, and do not condemn. I think this is the ultimate sort of judging. It's the idea of condemning another person to hell. It's declaring your own punitive judgment upon them. Remember that this chapter has a hinge verse, verse 31, which is the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And many of our culture, particularly of other religions, have interpreted that to mean Jesus is saying, don't try to convert other people to your faith as a Christian because the Hindus wouldn't want you to do that to them. In fact, some of our Christian brothers this week in India were arrested for nothing more than sharing their faith. They believed that they were violating the golden rule, that you wouldn't want the Hindus to try to convert you. But think of it this way. Let's say you get in your automobile tonight after the day is over, and you have to travel up to Oklahoma City for a work assignment. And it's late at night, it's rainy, and the bridge is out over the Red River. But you don't know that. It's only been swept away in the last few minutes. The authorities haven't been alerted yet. But there's someone up ahead who saw it happen. And they know that if you keep barreling down 35 north at 75 miles an hour, you will surely plummet to your death. Do you think it would be unloving for them to stand out in the road and flag you down? I don't. And so here's how I interpret that. Not only do I believe it's not a violation of the golden rule to share your faith with someone, I think it is demanded in the golden rule that we tell people about Jesus. This is doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. Wouldn't you have somebody warn you if your life was in jeopardy? If your eternal soul was in peril? Most loving thing you can do. And so be careful of those who misinterpret and abuse this passage of Scripture, to put words into Jesus' mouth that He never said. But we're not to condemn. We're not to pronounce our own judgment on them. This is so rampant in our culture that we don't even take notice of it anymore. There's not a 30-minute sitcom on television that someone doesn't condemn another person to damnation four or five times. And it's become almost just a mild swear word. Can you imagine the enormity 
of pronouncing eternal judgment on someone? Jesus says, that's not your job. Leave that to the Lord. And then he, he turns around and he makes uh, a positive. He just turns the coin over theologically in Luke 6. And he says, don't judge them. Don't condemn them. But here's what you do. Pardon and you will be pardoned. Give and it will be given to you. To pardon someone means to forgive them. It means to overlook an offense. Not to get your pound of flesh that is coming to you. Isn't that what Jesus does? Doesn't he pardon our offenses? Wasn't it David that praised the Lord that he did not treat him as his sins deserved? Well, so must we treat our enemy. Remember, this is in the context of loving your enemies. Sometimes we preachers get the well-earned reputation of always being negative. Always telling people what they're doing wrong. I think sometimes we need to catch people doing right. So I want to stop for a minute and commend you, First Baptist Church of Keller, for, uh, as far as I can tell, getting this one right. You know, I told you I've been here 18 years altogether, and over that 18 years, probably three or four, half a dozen at the most times on a Sunday morning here, we will have protesters who will show up. And many of you are surprised by that because you never knew it happened because they're gone before we leave here. But they'll come and they'll unload and they'll bring out their pickets. Now usually some activist group, usually homosexual activist group, and they'll put signs saying all of us are bigots and homophobes and you've heard it all, right? And in my mind, probably what they're trying to do is elicit a negative response from you all to get you to say something in anger to something they can put up on YouTube. Say, aha, this is what Christians, this is how they behave. They, they hate us. And to my knowledge, they are 0 for 6. Because I can't tell you how many times one of the policemen will come to me and say, Pastor, let me tell you what your people did while the protesters were out here. They took them cold water because it was hot outside. I saw a little lady in her 80s walk across the street to give a gospel tract to one of them. Now be careful about patting ourselves on the back too much, right? But you need to hear that. That's what it means to love your enemies. That's what it means to do good to those who hate you. It's exactly what Jesus was talking about. Because if I'm interpreting this correctly, he's saying that is the most effective tool you have in your toolbox for evangelism. Because the reason we want to have an open dialogue with a lost and dying world, the reason we don't want to, to give them back the, the negative they're giving us is so that we can have a platform to tell them about Jesus, right? It's not just so that we can have a more comfortable life and we won't have any persecution. Look, I don't know about you, I'm not looking for more persecution. And, and if by being kind and generous to a lost person, it's more likely that we're not persecuted, I'm all for that. Now we know that this is not a universal promise. Jesus is not saying if you're kind to everybody and you love everybody, even your enemies, eventually they're all going to come around and treat you well. They didn't do that to Jesus, did they? We know how his life ended. I, I take this proverbially. That is, this is the most effective tool you have against your enemies is love. It's kindness. 
Remember I said this is true not only in the culture, but also in your homes. Don't forget, we have many people who come to our church alone because their spouse is not a believer, their children are not believers. The Apostle Peter dealt with that in one of his epistles. Specifically, he wrote to women who had unbelieving husbands at home. And he said, ladies, if you want your husband to come to faith, hit him over the head with a Bible 10 or 12 times a day. And nag and bicker and plead with him to, get, to come to church with you. That's not what he said. He said, you can, if I remember correctly, by your chaste behavior, win him without a word. And I think here's what he means. He's not saying universally that if you do what is right and you love your husband even when he's an unbeliever and you honor him as a man, God guarantees that he one day will come to faith. I don't think that's in the Bible. I think what he's saying is the most effective thing you can do to win him to faith is live for Jesus in front of him every day. And if that is true in a home, it's true in an office. If it's true in an office, it's true on a football team. If it's true in a football team, it's true in a dormitory. The point Jesus is making is this. Look, you're never going to win a platform to talk about Jesus by being hateful. You're never going to win anybody to faith in Christ by slander. You're never going to tell people how much God loves them by hating them. And so we might as well just uh, do what Jesus said. Love your enemies. Be merciful. Be generous. Be kind. Because when we do that, we're never more like Him. You will be called the sons of the Most High. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. And you are kind and generous to us. And you give us good things when we don't deserve it. Most especially, you withhold punishment when we do deserve it. That is your mercy. Lord, sometimes in our arrogance and self-righteousness, we see the attitude and the sinfulness of the culture and we want to play God. We think like James and John who said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? It's not our job. You're the judge, we're not. So Lord, we want to be called sons of the Most High. Help us, Lord, to be forgiving. Help us to be merciful. Help us to be kind. And Lord, when we do, it's our great hope that our enemies even will give to us in return, pressed down and shaken, running over the opportunity and the platform to share our faith and win them to, to Jesus. And Lord, we know that's the work of the Holy Spirit. But Father, we believe that is what you'd have us do, to love our enemies. Help us to do it through the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.